What is Peace Brain? Peace Brain is the synergistic connection between our mental and emotional bodies, blending the electrical power of the mind with the magnetic force of the heart. Listen and explore how to create unity worldwide as we blend science and metaphysics and open our hearts and minds to the possibilities of peace on earth and create the life we are each destined for. Featured guests range from angel communicators to zoologists and everything in between. Now here is your host, Dr. Gail Lash. Hello and welcome to the Peace Brain Show. This is your host, Dr. Gail Lash, and we're happy to have you here today. Today I'm excited because we're going to be talking about elephants. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about elephants in human care, in zoos, and um, sanctuaries, but particularly in Zoo Atlanta with this new exhibit, um, Elephant Experience, that's opening up here in 2019. So before we do that, though, as you know, on the Peace Brain Show, I always open the show with a quote, and then at the end of the show, I have a Peace Brain meditation, this wonderful meditation, so please stay tuned for that. Uh, I have a, a wonderful guest on, who happens to be my husband, who is a zoo designer, so we're going to be talking with him, Nevin Lash, in just a few minutes. So as always, as I said, I open the show with a quote. And today I've picked a quote from Marcellus Bearheart Williams, and it goes like this. O great spirit, we come to you with love and gratitude for all living things. We now pray especially for our relatives of the wilderness, the four-legged, the winged, those that live in the waters, those that crawl up on the land. Bless them that they might continue to live in freedom and enjoy the right to be wild. Fill our hearts with tolerance, appreciation, and respect for all living things, so that we might all might live together in harmony and peace. And that's actually called the prayer for the wild things. <laughs> now, you might think it's kind of interesting that I bring this prayer about wild things to our show today when we're talking about animals that are that are wild animals, but they're also under human care in our urban zoos and sanctuaries. But really, this is a discussion we're going to have of how to use, have these animals as ambassadors, really, to preserve the conservation of the animals that are free in the wild. Because just as the prayer suggests, we want them to continue to live in freedom and enjoy the right to be wild. And so many things are happening on our planet that many times that is not possible. So also, this prayer for the wild things is a painting done by Bev Doolittle that she's created. It's a beautiful painting with an Indian in prayer on a cliff overlooking a valleys of animals below. And they're, they're kind of hidden in the rocks and in the landscape. So it's a, it's a um, scavenger hunt, if you will, to find all the animals that she's painted in that painting. And there must be like 20 or 30 of them. It's pretty amazing. So uh, so I introduce this prayer just to set us on the, on the path to say that, yes, we really want animals to be wild and free. This is the point. We are here on the planet, and of course the Peace Brain Show is all about how to create peace on Earth. 
and how to really bring that harmony to everyone. So there are ways to do that. But, you know, I think I don't have my figures exactly, but it's somewhere around 60 to 80% of the population of the world lives in urban centers. So how do those urban centers, those peoples, really get to know the wild animals and have an empathy and a compassion for those animals and be able to protect and preserve them? So today we have my guest, Nevin Lash, who is, as I said, my husband. We have a company called Ursa International where we design zoos and wildlife sanctuaries worldwide. Um, and we'll, we'll be talking about this and how we can make, if you will, the best zoo ever, one that brings this well-being to those animals who are ambassadors for their conspecifics in the wild. So let me introduce Nevin. He has almost 40 years of, of environmental planning and landscape architectural experience. And during that time, he, he has been involved in projects ranging in scale from residential garden design, major corporate camp, campus development, commercial and mixed-use planning, to regional environmental assessment. It was in the early 1980s that he joined CLR Design to develop a new kind of zoo, where the visitor and the animals are immersed in the landscape together, as they are in the wild, in a natural setting. Beginning with Zoo Atlanta in Atlanta, Georgia, Nevin worked with that zoo to transform that zoo into a new uh, landscape immersion zoo. And he's also worked at Chicago's Brookfield Zoo and Lincoln Park, the Los Angeles Zoo, Honolulu Zoo, Dallas Zoo, Chimp Haven, which is a chimpanzee sanctuary for those uh, chimps that were used in medical research but have now living out a sanctuary uh, for the rest of their lives, the North Carolina Zoo, the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Nation, and many, many more zoos and aquariums here in the United States. Since forming Ursa International uh, in 1994, Nevin is also aimed at reaching a broader audience. He traveled and worked with Park Zimbaza in Madagascar, the Hope Zoo in Jamaica, clients in Tanzania and in South Korea to design new zoos, and consulting with conservation organizations in China, Rwanda, and Uganda. Utilizing his skills in programming and design, he continues to work with conservation-minded organizations worldwide to bring landscape immersion, environmentally sensitive planning, and the concept and practice of wellness into each project. And you can find out more about Nevin at ursainternational.org. That's U-R-S-A and then international, I-N-T-E-R-N-A-T-I-O-N-A-L dot O-R-G. And you can also, there's a video that I believe he's just posted on the page. That is a video from Zoo Atlanta on its new Zambezi Elephant Center and African Savannah um, that you can watch. That's about what we're going to talk about today. So I encourage you to go there and find out about that, to watch that video of this new project. So welcome, Nevin, to the Peace Brain Show. Well, thanks, Gail. Love to be on. <laughs> great. And I, I sound like a pretty old person with all that experience. <laughs> I, must, I must be tired by now. <laughs> you have a wealth of experience, but you are not old <laughs> in your attitude and in your did, energy. Yeah, I did so. start when I was twelve. You're absolutely right. <laughs> now this is a very this is actually a second career. Like you, you showed all the the commercial work that I did in the first ten years of my practice, 
and got completely bored with it uh, after a point, getting more parking spaces into shopping malls and and all this uh, kind of thing. And, and the zoos really did provide me with uh, what I expected my career to have, which was a environmental bent and something that I could uh, can really feel good about and a little higher on the moral scale than the commercial work that I was doing. Well, as a biologist, I totally understand <laughs> because both of us are tuned into making the planet where people and wildlife can interact together and they're really in harmony together. Um, so it's, it's you're right, that moral scale is... Everyone wants to feel like they're making a difference in their own way, and, and you certainly are. So let's talk about getting into zoos. You know, how did you feel about that when you first got into zoos? Well, I was I was introduced to uh, Cohen Lee, the the heads of the practice that I later worked with for about eight years, um, when I was working in a architectural office, wearing a tie and all that sort of thing every day, um, meeting with traffic engineers and and uh, all sorts of architects and this and that, and uh, I walked into their office and uh, John Coe was in his shorts and. Uh, Birkenstock sandals with clay in his hand, and he was building a model of a uh, indoor facility, and it all looked so different to me than what I was um, doing at the architectural firm, and more relaxed and more uh, important, much more important, because you know what what they're doing in zoos is really trying to make children understand that there is a bigger world out there than their. TV sets and their their Game Boys and their uh, classmates that there is a world out there that that needs our help and needs our attention and um, and the better zoos are doing that and that's what you know I was seeing some of the work that they were doing that never looked like any zoo that I'd ever been to because I'd been to zoos when I was you know a child in the 50s and 60s and the elephant was chained to the back wall and. You know, the animals were in cage, barred cages and pacing back and forth. And I see some of the photographs that they have, this lush green backgrounds and gorgeous landscapes and visitors in small groups pointing in, in, in hushed tones. And it's just a very different experience. And you'll, you'll know that when you go to a zoo that is a better zoo and has this kind of a, a landscape immersion style that, that transforms the visit to the zoo to a, um, you know, a belief that maybe you're transported somewhere. Maybe you're, you know, in Africa and, and standing on the savannah and looking into a, uh, a bush and there's, and there's the, the warthog scurrying around and there's the meerkats up and down the trees and this and that. So it's really, uh, a different sort of landscape and that's what we try to create. Right. And, and I'll just say meerkats are on the ground. <laughs> I know. I said that up in the tree. But, you know, it, you never know. You, you know, these are wild animals, and they have places to go. They have options. People. They have options. They yeah. do have options. They've given trees. And, you know, in the savannah, there are very few trees, right? So they don't mind being out in the open as long as they're looking for hawks in the sky. So let's talk a little bit about the evolution of zoos at the beginning before we get into this amazing elephant experience that you've designed and and is almost being almost completely 
finished being built uh, here in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. Um, they, well, for example, let's just take the elephant exhibit at Zoo Atlanta for the moment. Back in Zoo Atlanta was was first started in 1889 as a a traveling circus that left their animals here in Atlanta, and <laughs> they had to be put into the first zoo here, and it was the typical cages, as you just said. But then, when was the, was it in the 50s that the, the original yes. ele- elephant habitat was built? Yes. Which then had an elephant little show, them doing things up on the pedestal and all of that good stuff, I believe, correct? Yeah, yeah, and if you can imagine, the, the habitat was a 100-foot circle of concrete uh, wall, and visitors right. would line up along the entire circumference and look at the elephant standing in the very middle of the habitat because he didn't want to favor any one side because there are people everywhere. So it, it's, it wasn't a, a great condition, Terrible. obviously. Right. Uh, right. We've seen that in other places. And so it was in the the 80s that Cohen Lee was uh, invited to upgrade the zoo. It had turned into one of the worst zoos in the country, and animals were finding their way into uh, circuses and you know, in odd situations. And uh, the zoo was uh, being asked to either uh, fix and renovate or close down. And the city of Atlanta rallied around the zoo and and came up with some money to actually renovate the zoo, and that's when we were we got involved with some local architects and engineers, and uh, and Cohen Lee from Philadelphia were hired as the zoo experts to work with the staff and create a a new kind of zoo. And so that elephant exhibit that was created in the '80s and opened, I believe, in '89 was, or no, maybe earlier, but was a um, how did it look? Well, it took the same footprint of that open circle and inserted um, a sort of a more natural setting with rockwork and and barriers that were above the ground that we could that we can see and that created visual barriers within the exhibit that you didn't see the whole exhibit at once and you had three different viewpoints and each one you can see into a a landscape that that had a green backdrop and that was our claim to fame. At least it didn't look like a uh, a barren landscape. And it was great because it had a big pool in it and it had shade trees and it had a uh, a shade structure that they can hang things from and they can enrich the animals. And it had a large barn that had paddocks on either side. And so the animals had an extra room in that holding barn. But it was still a very, eh, while it was state-of-the-art for that time, it was a pretty pretty much a managed control setting for the animals. The keepers told them to open the gate and let them go into this area and then open the gate and let them in that area. There was no choice really for the animals except, you know, do I like the hay or do I like the alfalfa? So it becomes a, we weren't exactly enriching the animals to the point where they could, they can truly be wild. Well, at least they did have choice to go into the pool or to stand under the shade tree or, tree or behind the rock where the people couldn't see them, you know, if they wanted more privacy. But you're right, it was, it was a, uh, still a small exhibit and mainly because at that time the, the regulations or the, um, the prevailing view was that keepers can work with elephants and be in with elephants and manage them hands on. So, 
they did have more interaction. Well, I won't say more, but they had personal, no space in between interaction with humans, with the keepers, the, the human um, caretakers, and then could be actually uh, shown some natural behaviors to the public. And I know there was a little area where demonstrations could be done of what elephants are capable of and and also elephant painting <laughs> where they were given a brush and were painting, which is interesting because I, I believe they enjoyed that, but, you know, you'd have to ask the elephant that. Um, so there were, it was a different time of, of what uh, keepers could do, but now the regulations are that keepers have to do hands-off contact. So explain that a little bit. Yeah, we were, you know, when I was practicing with, with CLR, it was the time that um, that transition was occurring, and some zoos embraced it and said that's definitely the way to go, and we created these uh, environments that had a very, um, very secure holding buildings that the keeper was on one side of the the bollards and seven feet back so there was no connection and they used poles to train the animal that what we call target target training so they put a a tennis ball at one side and they moved them from one side to the other to get to look at the animal because that's what the, the keeper's job is to keep an eye on the animals make sure they're healthy if there's any uh, bruises or cuts, they would be aware of them. So you have to sort of manipulate the animal. But you know, in the olden days, you could you can wander around the animal with a with a hook in your hand, and and that would guide the animals around. And that that disturbed people, and uh, rightfully so. And this was a uh, a time where we were getting some environmental awareness of you know should animals be kept in captivity? Is this you know the way we want to treat animals. And with the elephants being such a intelligent species, um, they were sort of the beginning of the movement to, you know, maybe we shouldn't be uh, directly in with them. And the other part of it, of course, is that uh, I don't know what the statistics were, but there is one of the more dangerous uh, occupations at that time um, because be keepers were being keeper. killed. and. Yeah, being an elephant keeper, you might lose your life if an elephant decides that he uh, wanted to squash you against the wall. And, um, you know, it didn't happen often, but it happened enough that it was, you know, it just didn't seem like good <laughs> good business practice to allow the, the keepers to go in with the animals. So we, we did transform these uh, you know, few zoos slowly but surely went into this protected contact mode. And they would, everything was done remotely and the animals moved in and out and did whatever they wanted to do. Um, and it was, it really brought in the, the next generation of elephant exhibits. Um, that the third generation came, I don't know, was it 2000, 2002 or something with new regulations that started specifying the size of these enclosures and that they all be protected contact. And if you were going to have elephants, you needed to abide by those, or those elephants were um, can't be in your zoo. And a lot of those zoos had several years to transition, but in the last 10 years, to, you know, 15 years, we've seen you know, a dozen or two dozen 
um, new zoo exhibits for elephants, each one larger than the next and more complex than the next. And then the northern zoos uh, were not able to meet the standards because it had temperature requirements. And so if they were to keep an elephant in captivity in a northern environment, they'd have to have indoor enclosures of the appropriate size. And these were very expensive, and uh, very few zoos opted for that sort of size interior. And in Europe, they were building them, and it was, uh, you know, they're amazing exhibits, but even those aren't big enough, you know, because they were minimum standards uh, for indoor environments that were, you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollars just to build the, the interior. So a zoo that had that kind of money uh, was hard to find. And most zoos in the north decided, you know, it's time for the rhinos to take over the elephant exhibits and uh, ship their elephants further south. So the way they tell us a that little... outdoors in the winter. Right. Yeah. yeah, thank you for that. Tell us a little bit about then when this new exhibit at Zoo Atlanta started. Well, this was an interesting story. Of course, um, we had that, that small habitat, and on the master plan, there was a vision for a large uh, new elephant management place. And this was going to take over the whole lower end of the zoo and you know, displace many things. And uh, I doubted whether or not that was even feasible due to some of the underground situations that are down in that part of the zoo. But the master plan showed it. Big pipes and access and things like that. That, um, yes, it was nicely drawn, but it wasn't buildable yet. And so that was always in the back of our heads moving forward that what are we going to do about elephants? And at one point. Let me me stop uh, you for one second. There was this beautiful new savanna that was built in the the late 80s that housed. Zebras and giraffes and antelope and um, and ostriches and and you know as a mixed exhibit and were was a really gorgeous natural landscape immersion uh, exhibit with these large holding buildings for giraffe and for the uh, the hoofstock. But then that was on the northern part of the zoo, or the yeah the northern right. part of the zoo, in a different area than you're describing now. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It was going to all move to another place. So, you know, massive amount of money needed to do that um, and disturbance to the zoo and whatever. But it was going to be uh, possible, you know, if the master plan were to be followed. Mm-hmm. So we were moving along uh, designing. We did a carnivore exhibit uh, to create more uh, opportunities for different species, not just the tiger that we had. Um, and then we finished that and the city, uh, approached the zoo in a, in a quiet sort of way and said, um, there's a building right out front of the entrance of the, the zoo in the Grand Park, uh, city park that was called the Cyclorama. And it housed a 360 degree painting of the burning of Atlanta, a major, uh, Cyclorama style painting. Um, where the visitors would be in the center and, and spotlights would show the different scenes uh, telling the story of the Civil War. And this was a, a, a large building that was 
not exactly a museum quality uh, 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 building that would house a uh, a painting of this stature for too long. Eventually, the uh, the folks that would curate that painting determined that that building isn't appropriate and they were going to move the painting to the history center and build a new pavilion for it that would be uh have the the proper air quality and so, so let me just say that the painting was 50 feet high correct 50 feet tall and 360 feet in diameter and uh, in length and in fact, the painting was so large that there was a portion of it that never got exposed because the building wasn't big enough. Uh, wow. In fact, this building was built, I think it was in the 20s, and that was it was replacing a wooden building that um, that was in the park that that housed the entire painting. But apparently, the wooden building didn't last. Uh, I'm not so sure if there was a fire or not, but whatever, they realized that that was inappropriate as well. So these these evolutions of buildings and this one for painting. And it also had a locomotive in the basement and that had a lot going on. And, uh, and we had assumed that that building was going to be there forever. Um, and the zoo uh, would have to, uh, just coexist with it. Well, now the, the city came to us and said, um, would you like this building? Is there something that you can find uh, a use for? And the zoo director invited us in and, um, I was working with a local architect, the Epstein Group, and uh, and we were given the challenge to uh, come up with some um, some adaptive uses for the building. And knowing the master plan and knowing the zoo for the last twenty some odd years, I knew that elephants was their big challenge, and in fact the savanna was a big challenge because the standards were changing and animals like rhinos need a lot more room that we were than we were giving them. And so we looked at the, the building and we looked at the site and the building didn't really come come with a a piece of land because it was in the park it was just a building in the park where the zoo had a perimeter fence and and you know we had a a piece of land that was ours and we weren't allowed to move out of it. Here the city was giving us this building and it gave us a little opportunity to maybe expand the zoo. But we were timid because every time we approached the city about expanding the zoo, uh, we got turned out. So in this case, we designed three different approaches. One would be, well, we don't get any more land, but we get the building. What would that give us? Uh, we were still thinking about uh, the administration would move into there and there would be room for a large uh, event space. And it could be, uh, you know, a great place for, for weddings and, and, and uh, all sorts of events. But being where it was, we didn't really get a view of the zoo from there. So we said, well, let's expand a little bit to get us a view. And here's an acre and a half. And okay, we get a glimpse into maybe a, an expanded savanna. And that would be really nice. And, uh, it wouldn't change the, the, the lines too much of what, how big the zoo was. But then we said, well, let's see, what would we, what would we need if we really wanted to solve one of the bigger problems at the zoo, which was, you know, can we create a large enough elephant enclosure, uh, at that, in that site? And how big a piece of land would we need to do that? 
And so we showed that and, uh, we said we needed extra three acres. And, uh, we can combine that with the savanna that Gail talked about with the giraffe and the rhino land and, and the parakeet exhibit. And, you know, we were, we were looking for room every, every which way that we can create a big enough environment for, uh, a future elephant enclosure. And so we had designed this sort of in secret because, uh, I didn't want to get our hopes up and get everyone all excited. Um, but there was a time where there was a press conference with the, with the mayor and, and a meeting with the mayor and the mayor went immediately to the three acres and said, of course, you know, that's what you need. That's going to be great, you know, and, and I'll even build a parking deck in the back and we can really expand the zoo. And, you know, so it became a, a huge project set of projects, uh, with the, the parking deck, which was going to be a green parking deck with a additional parkland on top and a restaurant. And it was the renovation of the 100-year-old Cyclorama building um, and into a, a major uh, major complex for the zoo to put all the office space and uh, and this new event center for a 1,000-person sit-down dinners, uh, which we used to have in a tent in the back of the zoo. And with the sides down, you wouldn't even know you were in the, in the zoo. And here was a chance to build an event center with two levels of, of outdoor terraces that overlooked this new expanded savanna. So as soon as the mayor saw this great view out the back of the savanna, of, of the savanna, he knew that that was the right thing to do and an announcement was made. And along with the announcement of the, um, of the Atlanta History Center that they were going to be taking the, the painting and the locomotive and building a new set of exhibits for them there. So it was a, and they also made the announcement of the parking deck, of course. So it was, it was a big, uh, big excitement. This was 2013, no, 2014, uh, in July. And that was That's the beginning like the win-win. for us. Everyone loved it. Everyone loved it. There was some complaints about parking decks in the city park, uh, because we had had that experience at Piedmont Park where a parking deck was proposed and the neighbors got up in arms. Um, For the botanical now we have beautiful, and now we have a beautiful parking deck at the botanical garden that you can't see from anywhere, but you know how to get there, and it's uh, it gives you great access to the park. So, mm-hmm. so here we are. We're um, 2014, and uh, we didn't have a an extra penny, but we had this building, and we had this dream of making a. Uh, expanded elephant enclosure. So how did you make it happen? <laughs> or how well, did the power you know, to be make it happen? As it turned out, uh, Raymond King, the oh, zoo director. Yes, I was going to say, let's uh, mention the zoo director because he's a great fundraiser. No, yeah. because this, this guy was, had just come maybe three years before that. And he was coming from a banking, uh, uh, banking industry where he was involved with special projects in the community. He worked with the the Natural History Museum, creating a children's play area up on the third floor, and you know, all a variety of, of community projects that the bank was uh, participating in. And uh, he had got his uh, feet wet in raising some money for the uh, the reptile building, the previous project, and now he went off to raise money for this elephant enclosure and the cyclorama. And uh, we gave him a a price tag that was way low, 
well, at the time it was as big as we could even imagine that it would cost. It was about forty-two million dollars, and um, and he went off and oh, the elephants are pretty pricey, and uh, so yeah, we had talked to the the elephant manager and where we had planned a building that was about nine or 10,000 square feet. He walked in and said, I need at least 19,000 square feet. You know, so things like that happened during the process that kept expanding and expanding, and we had to keep fitting and fitting. But uh, but Raymond King was uh, undaunted. He, he was off to, to raise his $40 million. And uh, I guess one of his early steps was to the Wood, Woodruff Foundation, which is the Coca-Cola money um who contributes to major projects in Atlanta and we'd gotten some grants from them before but you know we were asking for a big a big ticket this time and and they came out in in spades and said hey we'll come up with a 20 20 million dollar matching grant now i don't know any projects that <laughs> in any zoo anywhere that gets that kind of a a first gift. These uh, these early gifts are very important to the community to say, oh, well, if they're going to do that, then we have to get involved too. And it didn't take him but a couple of months to come up with that forty million, that extra twenty million dollars, and then let that let the Woodruff Foundation match. So he was he was off and running with his first forty million dollars, and uh, let us get to design. And this time it was a design out in the open. Involving all the staff members and and uh, and the leadership team of the zoo and uh, and how we normally do we we involve everyone in, into these workshops and and discuss all the the hundreds of details that are involved in you know how are we going to contain the animal what kind of substrates do they need what kind of uh, barriers are we talking about and uh, what's the holding building uh, design because. Now, these are now that we're doing this hands-off uh, management. You need access to a lot of perimeter and a lot of um, you know, shift doors. There might be about 40 shift doors in this building to move animals from place to place to place. And in the meantime, so how, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking. Well, I was say- in terms of sequence, um, before we really got into the design in a big way. Um, the architects and myself and uh, Nate, who is the animal manager, elephant manager, took a tour of, uh, of four different new elephant enclosures. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's where we really learned, um, you know, the ins and outs and, and where the pitfalls might be uh, in the design. And what other zoos have done. Yeah. Yeah. Where did you go? Yeah. And, and there were, what like other... I said, there was a... We went to North Carolina Zoo and the uh, uh, Cleveland Metro Park Zoo and Birmingham Zoo and uh, I'm trying to think. I think it wasn't Milwaukee, although I'd been there. There was just a, a bunch of zoos that needed to be. I think there were three on our tour, and then I'd seen another Denver? four or five. Did you, you've seen Denver as well. Well, we had, you and I went to Denver. Right. Uh, one of our trips, and that was an eye-opening experience. Mm-hmm. Where each per, each group took that challenge in their own way, fitting it on their land as they could. Some made uh, really large enclosures, like it was Birmingham that was the other place. 
um, where they have four male elephants, bull elephants, living together on seven acres. So, and North Carolina Zoo has about, I think, 12 acres. Um, so, it, you know, where other zoos were able to meet the minimum with two two acres or so. And so we were we were happy with the idea of having three extra acres to to work with, but even that was, became tight once we put in all the visitor space and all the uh, the the buffers between exhibits and and everything like that. So but, let's mention that in back in I'm trying to remember the 80s we we also went to Kenya and saw elephants in the wild, and of course we're also in Tanzania, but it's. In other words, you've seen elephants in their natural habitat, and you do that routinely. You go to where these animals come from um, in many instances as a designer to actually see what the habitats look like and how the animals use their natural wild settings and bring that into your design, correct? Yeah. I mean, that's that's a basic (laughs) principle. As much as possible in a small urban area. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, you know, we, we definitely... Understand elephants and um, and the and really right as we got into it. I originally I I thought well elephants let let the guys that are that have the big firms handle that because it is a very complicated um, set of requirements um, and the hardware and the structural requirements for for holding elephants. So I hadn't really participated in the latest. Generations of the large elephant enclosures, the fifty million dollar elephant enclosures. I had seen some, and I said, "Okay, well, fine. I don't need to be involved with that." When this one landed in my lap, it was it was a different sort of a way to uh, design. So I thought, you know, I couldn't say no, and um, so we had a lot of learning to do. So we not only took the tour, we uh, we talked to a lot of elephant um, researchers who are out that live with elephants um, in Africa. And, you know, what it is that elephants do every day. And this started us on that track of wellness. How can we bridge a captive situation with a wild situation? And really what that, that whole sphere is, uh, what we consider wellness. Can you create a situation where animals can thrive, not just exist and not just, you know, be uh, well fed and well cared for. This is giving elephants choices and uh, ability to uh, to exhibit natural behaviors. You know, and will they raise children? Will they will they breed? Will they uh, go ahead and and create a family group? And what we learned about elephants is fascinating because I, I think everyone thinks of elephants like every other character in the you know in the wild. And that there's a family group with mom, dad, and kids. Well, when you look at elephants in the wild, it's mom and the kids. And dad is a guy that showed up one weekend and impregnated the, the matriarch of the, of the herd. And then he ambled off, you know, and left the girls to take care of all the babies. And when the babies grow up and, and, um, if one's a male, he ends up going off and when he's about eight years old and uh, lives with the boys out in the, uh, in, the, in the male herd. And how do you do that in a zoo situation? It's, that 
becomes pretty complicated. And what people were doing was they were separating the the male out from the females and had to have a separate habitat and holding. Some zoos are actually creating separate holding buildings for the males. And so it really creates a lot more complication than a group of animals, a family group. Mm-hmm. So at Zoo Atlanta... So how did you do it? Yes, at <laughs> Zoo Atlanta. Yeah, at Zoo Atlanta we were, um, you know, my what I would bring to the group was, hey, what they're doing in Birmingham, they just have the males over there. It's two hours away. I think sperm can travel down the highway uh, as fast as possible, <laughs> and we, we can do AI for the females, and wouldn't that be great? Well, apparently no one wants to see a group of females without uh, being able to see a male, because the bulls are pretty impressive. Um, you know, they get to be seven and a half tons, um, they they are very impressive to look at. They're 12 feet tall at the shoulder, and um, you know so. And in fact, the regulations for the zoos say if you're going to house uh, house elephants, you're going to house both male and female. So that was our marching orders. And my idea of the trip down the freeway was not going to fly, and that we would have to provide for the bulls. Uh, on site as well as the, the cows. So, how did you accomplish that at Zoo Atlanta? You have well, what, two well, areas distinctively, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's really amazing about the site, and I didn't really get to talk much about it, but the Cyclorama, the large building, is at the bottom of the hill, let's say, and it rises gently up to the upper deck, which is the park, which is now being built as the parking deck. Um, and so we were able to cut in terraces uh, with these 10-foot barrier walls um, that maintain the the front habitat, uh, and then we transitioned into upper habitat behind. So from the cyclorama, you can see both habitats, um, uh, and from the the visitor trail from the ground level. But as you get further up into the the fourth floor of the cyclorama, you get some great views over both habitats. And in fact, from the parking deck, we'll be able to get some views into the, uh, into the bull habitat, at least the rear habitat is what we're calling it, or the, the east habitat and the west habitat. Because yeah. the, the zoo wants to maintain the group as much as possible as one group of elephants. So, the two elephants that live at the zoo currently will be moved over, and they're going to acquire a bull from San Diego, I think is uh, the current plan. Um, and then we hope to, hope to get two more uh, cows who are breedable. Uh, the two guys, two females that we have currently at the zoo are are not uh, reproductive. They're older, right? Yeah, and what we learned about Elephants is that the females, you want to breed them early, um, and, and then you can breed them for the rest of their lives. You know, maybe have two or three or four litters, or whatever they call groups uh, of elephants. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Right. So, but, you know, Thinly so one, but sometimes you three two. females, <laughs> and, um, and they never were bred, um, to the, so that they would have, a, a, a calf, so it was deemed that they were too old to 
reproduce, and they needed some young females in order to uh, to make this whole whole dream work out. So, and as it turns out, in this new age of elephants, there's a shortage of elephants um, that could be even the elephants moving from the north or or populating these larger enclosures in these larger uh, mixed herds in the south. Uh, and they, even like Denver has has four uh, four different habitats that they uh, cycle the elephants through in a rotation. And I think most of them are all male, and they have their individual habitats because these guys are tough to manage. And when you're in the wild, there's always a place to move off to, as mm-hmm. opposed to everyone living on this one one piece of ground. Um, mm-hmm. And the last thing you want are elephants fighting. So they've created a place where there are multiple habitats that are all strung together. And so that's what we took that as, well, that makes sense. So we'll have at least the two habitats that will be linked and also linked back to the barn so they can, they can manage the elephants as, as one group or as two groups or as three groups, um, using the different paddocks in the barn. So, so it's a, we're getting, or the we have another five minutes or so to talk with you before we go into the meditation. <laughs> so I just want to say, let yeah, let's go into some of the details of what el- what is there for the elephants and the visitors to see, the elephants to do, the visitors to see, um, some of the other details that people might not know when they go to the zoo that you can provide our listeners that they can go. Oh, well, I know about this. You know, size does matter in elephant enclosures. So, but what's really important at Zoo Atlanta is that it's not just one pot of land that, you know, you walk up to the overlook and see the whole exhibit. There are the first, first view that you come upon is, um, is over a water environment. So we have this large pool over a hundred thousand gallons. Um, very gently sloping sides to a seven foot deep so the elephants can get fully immersed and they can easily come in and out from anywhere. And that was very important for the keepers to give the elephants that kind of a, uh, environment. And then we have large shade structures that will have brows, hanging brows from them. And you can see the elephants stand up. If we can get them to, uh, to get on their back legs so they can, and that's sort of an exercise for the, these elephants. And they really haven't had that opportunity to, to get up on their rear, rear legs um, and reach for things. So we want to show that. We have these large trees that are in sort of protected island areas um, and giving lots of shade in different locations so they can move from place to place depending on the, the time of day. And the keepers will be seeding the habitat with a variety of, of browse and piles of sand and just a variety of uh, maybe a log or two here and there for them to play with. So, you know, they'll come out and um, choose where they want to go. And hopefully, uh, you know, they can both habitats will be open and accessible to them. And so they can put in quite a number of miles a day if they can move them from place to place to place. We also have a, a feeding wall that is a is a concrete wall with holes in it, and we're going to hang pails from the backside, and the keepers can put different 
favorite foods in there and maybe in one or two different pails and they can go look, check all the holes and make, see what they can get. Um, so that's going to be fun place. And over there we have a, an amphitheater for the visitors to sit and watch. Um, and that gives you a very long view through the habitat. And then there's the, the actual barn and the visitors can go in to a, a viewing room that, uh, you can be a keeper. You've got a glass partition, but you can see how the, the keepers work the animals through the bollards. And these are 12 foot tall steel, uh, columns that are six inches diameter, about two feet apart. So the, uh, the animals can be accessed pretty easily and move them around. And they've got, uh, the floors are, are three foot of sand, a very special sand that, uh, that won't get compacted in their guts. <laughs> There's lots of details as it turns out. But you know, what we really wanted to do was to show, uh, we didn't want to have a habitat, but actually the working barn. And that would, ha- that has seven stalls and two of them are what we call herd stalls, which are about 3,600 square feet and, um, interconnected. And so that creates a very large place for them to, uh, to interact as a group. And then there's also three smaller stalls that backs into that that we know we're going to need when we get into, uh, into breeding. And so there's some, uh, breeding stalls that one is a concrete floor and the other is a sand floor. So they have different substrates. And then we have, uh, two very large stalls on the end of the barn. One is, um, and that can be a suite for the bull. We need to separate him out, and we have a chute that goes across to that area, and that area also has outdoor paddocks, and the herd room has outdoor paddocks. So it's, there's a lot of in and out. Then the visitors can come and see uh, how the keepers move them from place to place to place and, and give them access, and we can get to see where they choose to be. We have uh, mm-hmm. shade cloths in the outdoor paddocks so that we can give them a, a shady place back there if they need it, or... Um, or they can just go out onto the, the habitat. We want to make sure that the visitors see see a lot of different kind of spaces for the elephants. We also have some small terraces with large rocks that they can climb up and give them more, a little bit more exercise than just walking around. Um, so we have some challenges, places for them. And uh, we also have a splash pad with a waterfall. And, um, so they can get in and, and play in the water. And we also have, uh, at the, at the bowl side, another deep pool that's basically half the size of the other one. And that has waterfalls coming off the edge. And that's about, that's about 60 or 70 feet long. Um, so we're expecting a lot of activity over at these pools. But, you know, we'll see. Um, the pool in the existing elephant enclosure didn't get a lot of action. Um, but we're, we're thinking that there were other, uh, they weren't able to get completely around the pool, which made it not as friendly. So we're trying to think like an elephant and see what they like to do. And we're <laughs> hoping that, that we've made the right decisions and, and always thinking in terms of wellness. What can we do for the elephants that would improve their lives, create them as natural, uh, 
behaviors as possible for the visitors to uh, to see when they take that walk to the barn. And along that walk to the barn, there there's out there we there are meerkats, and they won't be up in trees, which is unfortunate. But you know there are termite mounds for them to to dart in and out of. And so we have two habitats for meerkats. And then at the other end, we've got the large giraffe habitat. And what we've done there is uh, we flattened it. It had been on a hillside, and it had had terrible erosion problems all the time. And the zookeepers were adamant about creating a flatter space for for the giraffe. And now we've been able to create, we've raised every all the visitors up to a new terrace, a giraffe terrace, um, where there can be really laws, I think it's about 70 foot long feeding area that the giraffe can wander up to and get a, get some lettuce and, and get a chance to interact with the visitors. Um, and give them a, a hundred percent, uh, usable habitat, uh, which is really great. And then on the other side of that, there's a warthog exhibit that we were able to relocate and, uh, and the warthog exhibit sits on a little terrace that is next to a snack bar that also serves beer. So we're going to have a new beer garden with warthogs. Uh, so we're, we're pretty excited about that part. I think that's going to be the place where Dad goes and he uh, brings the kids to the zoo. <laughs> and then you're taking the old elephant exhibit and bringing in white rhinos, correct? We're and changing from black rhinos it? to white rhinos. And we're right. renovating the yeah. elephant barn. And uh, making it rhino, uh, rhino friendly, uh, mm-hmm. and that's our next project. Um, once the elephants move over to the habitat, uh, so it it goes on and on and on. And after that's done, we have the entry plaza to the zoo to work on. Um, so it's a it's a major project that that has been going on for four and a half years, and probably will continue for another year if we can uh, if all the cards play out correctly. Mm, but it's a zoo, and you never know from place, from time to time. It's always <laughs> a challenge and always, a, uh, you know, a little bit of head-scratching that has to be done. But at this point, we were so lucky to have been given so much money from the community to create uh, what I consider a uh, state-of-the-art elephant enclosure, elephant enclosure. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And, well, thank uh, well, you, Nevin Lash. <laughs> Well, I appreciate your everyone's time for listening and uh and uh come on out. We probably won't be opened until I'd say August at this point. We're gonna move the elephants and let them acclimate to the new barn and let the giraffe acclimate, but it's gonna be a, a challenging summer and hopefully by by the end of the summer we'll be able to open to the public. Yay. Now that's exciting. So we're talking about the Zambezi Elephant Center and the new Grand View, the Grand New View at Zoo Atlanta here in Atlanta, Georgia, with uh, Nevin Lash, zoo designer with Ursa International, and then, of course, Epstein Group uh, in winter construction and under the guidance of the zoo director, Raymond King, has done an amazing job here. And so thank you, Nevin, for being on the Peace Brain Show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> so I want to just um, remind you where you can find out more about Nevin and this exhibit as well. 
at ursainternational.org. That's U-R-S-A International, I-N-T-E-R-N-A-T-I-N-C-O-N-A-L, ursainternational.org. And we are toward the end of our show, the Peace Brain Meditation. I'm simply going to read the prayer again for the wild things because that is the, really the aim of zoos these days and any conservation sanctuary, animal sanctuary that you go to as the public. It is really about these beautiful animals being ambassadors for their wild counterparts, for those who are in the wild and being impacted by all of the human impacts that are happening, the habitat loss, the the climate change, the droughts, the floods, um, the the need for humans to use the same space and crowding the animals out. So it's um, it's very severe around the world. We're losing many many species, and I want you to close your eyes if you choose as I read this prayer again from Marcellus Bearheart Williams, called The Prayer for the Wild Things. O Great Spirit, come to you with love and gratitude for all living things. We now pray especially for our relatives of the wildness, of the wilderness, the four-legged, the winged, those that live in the waters, those that crawl up on the land. Bless them that they might continue to live in freedom and enjoy the right to be wild. Fill our hearts with tolerance, appreciation, and respect for all living things so that we might all live together in the harmony and peace. So take a breath. Bring yourself back to your room, wherever you are. And the next time you visit an animal sanctuary, a zoo or aquarium in your city, know that they are there doing conservation work. They are there teaching about these beautiful wild things (laughs) and then use your influence not only your money but your activism your voice and your way of teaching your children to protect this beautiful mother nature and this beautiful earth that we live on and all of its creatures so thank you for tuning into the peace brain show today i really appreciate it this is your host dr gail lash And you can find out more about me at tourismforpeace.com. And so now I invite you to activate your peace brain and create your peace park and put your peace park on our World Peace Trails map. Help create peace in the world in your own special way. Thank you so much. Namaste. Many blessings. Thank you for joining us on the Peace Brain Show. You can find us at tourismforpeace.com. Be sure to check out Dr. Gale's Akashic Records readings, her peace master plans for your business or organization, and her book, Hashtag Opt for Peace, Nine Essential Steps to Achieving Peace, Power, and Prosperity. Tune in to BBS Radio, Station One, every other Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern to the Peace Brain Show for your installment of wonder, inspiration, and practical peace.